This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Bronwyn Milkins. Hey, mental workers, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am extraordinarily excited because we have our first international guest with us. Their name is Alison O'Leary, and they are a licensed associate counselor in Arizona. She's here to tell us about her therapist story and a lot of other topics, such as money, systemic workplace gaslighting, the pressure to do tasks outside your job description, her journey to licensure, and her background as well. And yes, we do go through positive things as well. It's not all terrible doom and gloom, but it's really important that we go through Alison's journey and I hope by the end of it, you will all feel very validated. You will have good hints and tips to take away and you'll know I guess, some of the good things that come out of being a therapist and going through this journey. Okay, here to take us through it is Alison. Hi, Alison. Hi, Bronwyn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be on your podcast. And it's just, I I love listening to all of your episodes. So it's an honor to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. I was so grateful when you reached out and I was like, wow, someone in the US listens to the podcast. That's so bizarre. How did you come across the podcast? I actually had a colleague of mine who knew all that I had kind of gone through, had sort of a rough uh, intro to the field. And so she sent it to me and she said, Allison, you've got to listen to this podcast. It's, I know it's going to be so relatable. And, and then I listened to it. It was incredibly validating. Wow. That's so random. So that means I have two listeners in the U.S. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad that you found it very validating. And so let's jump straight in, which is I really want to, you've had such a varied career and I really just want to start when you started doing direct therapy work. So you didn't start direct therapy work until you're in your mid thirties. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. So what prompted you to get into therapy work? Yeah. So uh, interestingly enough, I had known I wanted to be a therapist since I was about 17, 18 years old. Um, And so I got my bachelor's in psychology and I was actually heading towards PhD programs. And I, um, my first, when I was first disillusioned, I did not get into any and I was really devastated. Um, So I decided instead I was going to go a longer route. I was going to get my master's in developmental psychology, do some publishing, some teaching, get become like a bit more competitive and then try again. And um, as I was doing that, I just realized how much I love the field. I wanted to get as much I got. I fell in love with research, um, did research for a while, felt conflicted on whether to stay in research or follow my dream to do therapy. And I just got absorbed as much information as I could. I did unofficial internships with PhD students, even though I didn't get credit. I did that at a, um, the suicide um, prevention hotline. And that was just, I, I drove, it took me two hours to get there every single time I volunteered, but I did it for about a year. 
And I, I just got all these different experiences in the therapy type field without the title of a therapist. So I was like a addiction recovery counselor. I did ABA therapy before we realized that there may be other forms of therapy that might be more appropriate. Um, I, you know, I did all these different types of things in the field. I was a family sports specialist for five years working with families kind of almost as a therapist, but not quite. So um, when I got my second master's in clinical mental health, um, I didn't, I actually started therapy before my internship as a master's level therapist. So I think I was probably 32 at the time, something like that. It's incredible to me that you've had so much experience even before gaining the title of therapist, because in Australia, it's really hard for us to gain experience in direct client facing roles. The most we can do is volunteer for Lifeline, which is similar to your suicide hotline. And we have to pay to do a training program for Lifeline, and then we can be a phone counselor. But everything else is pretty much barred from us in Australia. So it's really interesting to me that you've got such a breadth of experience. Like, did that really help solidify your direction for where you wanted to go? It really did. And it also gave me a ton of training. I know I've heard lots of therapists say they didn't always feel their master's programs prepared them for therapy work. And I felt that way sometimes. I, I can relate to that. Uh, but I was in the field for so long. It was just like, I, I would have had to be really not paying attention to not <laughs> absorb yeah. a bunch of stuff. And I was just, I've been such a nerd about therapy and psychology my whole life. So I was, I felt, I felt really excited when it was time for me to start my internship. Yeah, it was exciting. <laughs> so how many hours is your internship? Like when you started it, how many hours did you need to accumulate? Oh gosh, I don't know if I remember the hours. I remember I had almost double the hours I needed, but it, it was about a 10, 10 to 12 month internship program. It's pretty lengthy, uh, unpaid for most of us. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. There's, there's so many directions because then I'm like, oh, wow. Like I want to ask you how you survived an unpaid internship, but maybe take me to uh, what was next for you. So how did you actually get to licensure? I guess I'm a bit confused, like with the US. So you're doing this internship and then you have to be officially licensed to practice independently. Is that right? Every state is different, so it can get confusing. In Arizona, you take the um, NCC exam, you pass it, you get your LAC, you have to collect uh, 1,600 direct hours, at least, uh, I think, 200 hours of supervision. They just updated it to be, it used to be just 100. And then you get your independent license, which is an LPC. There are also different types of licensures, so... The LPC is just the route that I'm on, but it would get, it would take the whole podcast to go over <laughs> the different licensures in the different states. It sounds so like complicated. It's, it's a little complicated. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't okay. question it though. We're, we're just <laughs> like, all right. <laughs> okay. So with, I guess, your experience in the mental health field before you started therapy, what were you expecting going into the field? Going into the field, I was really excited. I was told that all the things I didn't learn in the school program, I would get at my internship site. My supervisor was going to be awesome. It was just going to be lots of knowledge. I thought there'd be lots of handholding and I was just ready to learn, you know, just kind of like sitting in the front of the classroom kind of energy. And uh, I had, when we talk about the disillusionment on the podcast or when I hear you say that I just so relate to it it was nothing of what I expected so it was an adjustment period 
Yeah, I'm always interested in how our expectations, I guess, when they come into contact with reality and how different that might be. And I'm finding that that's a common thread with therapists that we are usually such therapy and psychology nerds. We're so excited to come into this field and we believe that we're going to be taken care of and that everything's going to be okay. And then sadly, it's sometimes the complete opposite. And so I'm wondering, like, what was your experience? Were there good times or were there, I guess, more of those bad times? Yeah. So I I always like to share say that, you know, the work with clients has always been the best part. If it weren't for the clients, I think I would have had a real um, life crisis of why am I in this field? I don't know, but you know, but the clients have always been wonderful. And I've always had colleagues everywhere. I've either interned or worked that have been like life, a bit like lifelines for me. Um, so those have been the good experiences, uh, but yeah, there was just a lot of, you know, things that have been talked about on the podcast, the moral injuries, you know, we learn all these ethics in school, we learn, you know, the ideal right way of doing things. And then we go to a internship site, we go to a practice and we see things happening that, you know, are, um, concerning to us, you know, and, and we aren't always able to, share these concerns uh, if it's not an environment that's going to receive them well. So. Yeah, I 100% relate to clients being the best part of the journey. When I've been in difficult workplaces, I've always been like, look, the clients are fine. Like, I'm very happy to see my clients. Like, and I'm very grateful that I can do this work with my clients. But it's just the stuff around it. Like, I used to have my email settings set so that emails from management would go straight into an unread, like, archive folder, which is really sad because I just didn't want to see the emails from management. So, another reason why I had some disillusionment was because I spent five years working for a government funded, mostly government funded organization that was a very well oiled machine. They provided tons of trainings. We went to several conferences every year. We had weekly supervision. It was two hours every single week. Um, it was just, they did not give us too many uh, clients in our caseload. We never had more than 20 at max. And we were just given so much positive reinforcement. We had health insurance. And so I think I just assumed that it would be even better going into therapy, you know, because I was going into the homes for supporting families and children. And I thought how wonderful I'm going to have all of these you know, wonderful things, training, supervision, and clients are going to come to me in my office. And so, uh, you know, I think that working in this place for five years also, I don't know if I should say spoiled me, but it just raised the bar for me. And so I was even more devastated going into the field of therapy. And I went to multiple sites um, and to find out that this was actually more of um, what the field is like, not just this site or that site, but in general, it was kind of a larger issue. That's so interesting. And yeah, it's, it's sad to hear you say you were spoiled by just, I guess, reasonable workload and like a nice workplace. I mean, that sounds fantastic. No more than 20 clients. Wow. Incredible. And so I guess I'm interested in, in you coming into this field, like what, what did you feel when you first entered? So I initially was planning to do my internship where I was working as a school-based counselor. That was my first job in the field right before I started my internship. I was a school-based counselor and it was during COVID. And so this agency was actually a really good agency, I believe. But within co with, during COVID, it was in crisis. 
it was in, they were having a hard time. So the turnover was really high. I was supposed to, my contract said I would have 25 to 30 clients. I would have a case manager, an intake specialist, but because of the lack of support, I was wearing multiple hats. And by the time I left, I had a caseload of 60. Wow. That's incredible. Oh, wow. God, I can't even imagine the pressure and stress that that would have placed you under or, or were you coping with that? Well, COVID was difficult for a lot of people and I was definitely included in that. It was a tough time. I know a lot of therapists had to, you know, to abide by, we call it like HIPAA in yeah. the US, you know, and we had, we had to work in our, and sometimes in our bedroom or um, we had to navigate family. And so um, it can be challenging to do this work right next to where you sleep. Um, I was working with a lot of children who had experienced severe forms of abuse um, and, uh, as a first-time therapist, I was running multiple groups um, with not a lot of hand-holding. Uh, the supervision was almost non-existent because my supervisor would cancel often. And so even though I had a wealth of information in the field going into it, I still didn't feel right to me. And uh, and so I decided not to do my internship there because I couldn't imagine taking on more than 60. I was already struggling to see all of the clients that I did have. So, um, so I went searching for other sites and it was a bit bouncing around a lot of, uh, moral injuries. I should say <laughs> just like, Oh, this has been right. This is not, you know, and a lot of colleagues that could echo my concerns. A lot of times I left an agency and it was followed by a lot of other therapists and you're, you're left with a conflict of sorts of you feel this duty to be there for your clients. You don't want to leave them. You want to give them your best, but you realize that if you don't have work-life balance, if you're not getting paid enough, um, I've had contracts that, you know, said they were going to pay me a certain amount only to after I've started working for them, they tell me they actually can't pay me that much. They can only pay me this and it's after I've already started. So we have to put our own oxygen mask on first and then we can help others. So it was always really hard leaving clients and wishing I could take them with me. But um, I think during COVID, there was a lot of unsustainable work environments in private practice and in agencies. So I think that was part of why I had a bit of a rough introduction. Yeah. I wonder, did you ever consider leaving the field during that time? Because you had that five years that just sound like they were, that was fantastic. And then you're encountering all these difficulties and all this moral injury and your colleagues are echoing the same things. Yeah. Did you ever consider that maybe this isn't the right career for me? I've talked to some therapists and I can tell sometimes there's a lot of hesitancy to sharing that there's ever been doubt. So I want to be vulnerable and say, yeah, there absolutely have been times where I've just thought, I don't know if this is, you know, I, I wondered at times if we were doing more harm than good, if we have too many clients on our caseload and we're not able to see everyone, or if we're not able to have a good work-life balance, you know, is it really feasible to see? I had a colleague who saw 11 people uh, one day, every, about weekly, there was one day where she had 11 people on her schedule. I had a lot of job interviews where they wanted me to schedule 10 people a day. Um, and so I wanted to help people, but I also was just not sure of what kind of quality service I could provide in an environment that was overworking me and underpaying me and really shutting down any conversation around self-care, my own mental health, around fair pay, you know, these types of things. So I did have those moments, uh, but I've luckily had some colleagues that were have been cheerleaders for me. So that's been 
Oh, thank goodness. Because what you're describing is so next level. It's like expecting you to book 10 clients a day. It's like, wow, that's incredible. And these are like 50 minute sessions. Yes, I had one site that actually told me I was not allowed to have a lunch break because it wasn't negotiated in the contract. And because I was only working four days a week, uh, a five minute break in between was enough. And oh my goodness, I'm like shock face. Like if we were <laughs> like releasing the video of me, listeners would just see me be like, oh, oh, because oh, I'm like so shocked. It's just, <laughs> oh my goodness, how would you, how would you even survive that? That's just so bizarre. Like, oh my gosh. Handfuls of nuts, handfuls of nuts. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> so you just got like a jar of nuts on the table and then you just do that in between clients. It was in the drawer. It was okay, in the <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So I guess like I'm I'm actually really curious because yeah, like I said, the stuff you're describing is just so next level. Like I think if I was subjected to the same things that you're describing, I would just crumble under that pressure. I'm not even sure like my resilience skills could take me through. I think I would actually leave. So I'm curious, like how did you get through these times? Yeah, you know, there was um there are certain places I worked where there were, yeah, these really um, unrealistic expectations. And so I would just kind of glance at some of my other colleagues and I could see that they were also in distress. So we just sort of, you know, were almost afraid to connect what we did. And when we, we felt validated, I think, by each other's experience. And uh, it was a bit vicariously traumatizing also to hear what they were, you know, because I had one story and they'd have a story and, and, uh, you know, we would leave places, um, but these, these colleagues got me through, you know, they, they really helped me, you know, cause I'm definitely one to, if there's an issue, I immediately go, okay, what am I doing? What can I do differently? How can I say this differently? How can, am I, you know, I, I really start to look at myself. So, you know, after enough places, I started to feel like, am I the am I the issue? Should I be able to not have a lunch break? Should I be able to hand? Because sometimes when you bring up these concerns to supervisors or employers, um, a lot of gaslighting happens. And I know that's kind of a big word to use, but it's really kind of the most fitting one of, you know, oh, you can't see Tim. Are you sure this is the right field for you? Are you, you know, um, they kind of pathologize you in a way if you say, hey, and I think it's, you know, as therapists really good for us to reflect and notice our needs and tell our supervisors, hey, you know, I noticed that I, I don't need one long lunch, but I need kind of two short ones. That's how I'm my best self with clients. Or, um, you know, I, I, I notice I, do better with this type of client, or I've got to, you know, it's really good to just communicate with, with our supervisors on how we're doing, checking in with them. And so when you get shut down, um, or pathologize, it makes it so that you don't want to share with them, you know, what's, what's really going on. So I don't know if other people have experienced that with, with supervisors, half of my supervisors, I'm still friends with and one of them, as my current supervisor, she's my supervisor at one place that was awful. And she was one of the colleagues that encouraged me to start my own practice and has, you know, kind of was my, they've been like cheerleaders for me. But there, there also have been supervisors where I feel like they really took advantage of their um, supervisory power. And uh, that was really challenging. I know there was that one, one podcast you did, there was one episode that you did where someone was talking about how they shared with their supervisor that they had compassion fatigue and they were 
basically walked out of the building and something like that was very similar for me. I was not getting paid a livable wage. Um, I was getting paid a minimum wage salary. And I, when I shared, I, that this was affecting me, I needed to make more money. Um, you know, it was basically turned into a me problem and that I might not be in the right field if I, you know, so I've, I've got some interesting stories about workplace kind of toxic gaslighting of like, we should be able to live with making next to nothing. And, you know, it's okay to live with your family and not be able to live on your own, or it's okay to still have to live with roommates. And I was actually told that I um, had a uh, bougie lifestyle because I lived by myself in a one bedroom apartment. It's oh, wow. about 600 square feet. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so oh it's, it's just, yeah, the stories I have just go on and on. It was shocking <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> it's really shocking and it's just really saddening as well. And I think a lot of listeners could relate to this thought, like maybe it's me, maybe I'm the problem. Uh, like for example, something that I've heard not infrequently, but it's come up a few times has been that supervisees crying in front of their supervisor, like maybe they've had an awful situation or they're just exhausted. And then the supervisor pathologizing that and being like, mm, maybe you're not cut out when it's like crying can be just a regular, I guess, release of tension or distress, or it can mean it, it doesn't have to be pathological. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah, I've had some and my current supervisor is just, she's just wonderful. She's, she's so humble. She offers me different perspectives. She'll challenge me into thinking different ways about something. It's just, it's, I'm finally getting that supervision I've always wanted, but I've had some supervisors who it seemed like their sole mission to pathologize me. And I've had really strange feedback. Um, and I've asked, gosh, you know, are clients giving, say, are they calling the practice and saying this stuff? And no, no one's complained about you. Um, you know, we asked and they, they're all, they all think that you're sweet, you're fine, you know, but, but I, you know, they'll say something like, you just come off like you're too perfect you know, I don't know if that's really going to be relatable to people or, or you sit too straight. Have you ever thought about sitting differently? Just very strange feedback, uh, from, from supervisors. I've, I've had that were unusual. Um, I one time had a client that I was concerned with cause they weren't able to make it to their sessions. And, um, I said, you know, I'm wondering if they might do better with an in-home service There's so much going on with this family and the struggling with poverty. And it's very expensive coming here. I'm wondering about referring. And they said, Oh, you know, they probably just don't like you because you're not very relatable. And because you're, they just kind of said all these things like, you, you know, you probably just, they just don't want to work with you. Um, they probably don't like you. And so down the line, it turned out this family really loved me. And so they, they moved them and the grandmother, you know, it was a, it was a kiddo client. The grandmother actually called and said, well, if, if, you know, Allison can't see my grandson, I would like therapy. Can I see her? And they assumed this whole time that this individual hated me for no reason whatsoever. And so I was getting all this supervision around my personality being unlikable. <laughs> Oh my gosh, and, you poor thing. <laughs> and taking it in like, oh gosh, I must, I need to work on my, my, I must be too. And then I, you know, my colleague said that I started sitting really funny in chairs because I was trying to not sit so straight. Oh gosh. It's, it's laughable now, but at the time it was like, it was just devastating. You it would look have up been. to someone. But imagine like getting that phone call being like, can I see Alison and the grandmother be like that? And you would be like, ha, see, I told you, like, she does like me. I did have a moment of feeling that way, but I was like, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to say anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I've just had a lot of weird stuff, but, um, 
you know, now I know the other therapists that, that, uh, support me and they, you know, they see the best of me. They're, they're real cheerleaders. Um, you know, they really kind of held my hand through, um, opening up a private practice. So I was nervous about it, but they pumped me up. They say, Hey, we've worked with you. You're great with clients. You're, you're a good therapist. You know, my current supervisor said, you know, I'll supervise you in a heartbeat. I think you do great. And so ever since I went off on my own, I've been able to look back at a lot of these really challenging times and just laugh. Honestly, it's, it's, it's just, it's so ridiculous. It's, it's just funny. It, it, it is like, I, like we said, it's like going through it at the time, it would have been horrendous, but now looking back on it, it's just like, how bizarre to just be like, oh, it's, I'm sure the client doesn't like you rather than looking at these quite obvious systemic factors that might be making it difficult for them to attend therapy. Yeah, yeah, because I want to know, you know, how to help my clients, they've got a lot going on. And, and uh, sometimes it is, you know, a circumstance I haven't worked with before. And I value my supervisor's knowledge, I want to know, you know, how to how to better help people and and I want to know about their knowledge, their skill, their technique, the artistry, you know, all of that. And so to get so yeah, to get such a focus on these really strange, abstract, type things um like oh you're so sweet do you think that you know are you sure that it's genuine so so it was just it was very you know or comments on my my uh outfit my hair I was just like is there an HR department I don't know like, what's <laughs> like, where to go with all of this yeah and it, there usually it is sounds like sanctioned bullying like when you put it like that Sometimes it felt that way. You know, every place I worked was different. I think the agencies were just slammed. They were overwhelmed. Some of the private practices they went to, there was just some strange things happening. Um, one place I went to, it just felt a little bit like there was a bit of a cult vibe around, you know, we're supposed to just be completely sacrificial and not make any money. And everyone there seemed just miserable. Um, and I, I just, I think I've always been a rough, a feather ruffler. You know, if I, if I see something that doesn't make sense, I, I ask, I inquire. And I think that that can make someone a target if they're, you know, genuinely inquisitive or, um, yep. Being there done that. Yep. That's me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> and it's just like, you just ask questions. You're like, hmm, maybe this isn't right, but everybody just expects you to abide by the status quo. Absolutely. Yes. You feel that pressure, you know, you, it's like, you feel like you're in a room. It's like that study with the the lines. And, you know, if you've heard of that study, oh, yeah, one the, I think it's the Asher study. Yeah. The Asher's yeah. One line's definitely longer than the other, but everybody yeah. is saying that the short one is longer. And so when it gets to you, you're, and I definitely am the person who's like, no, that's no, that's not right at all. Yeah, that's definitely- <laughs> so you wouldn't be like, okay, it's the obviously like shorter line. I always think that study is so funny. It's like, you've got other people saying that this obvious like shorter line is um is the right line and then you're like what okay I must be the perceiving this wrong and then you conform to I guess um that peer pressure absolutely yeah absolutely and I and sometimes I I think I felt like I really should have conformed more I you know I was shooting a lot you know the, yeah. you know um and uh I just realized I gotta I have to take the advice that I give my clients you know it's if I'm having you know, strong emotions, if I'm having these moral injury, it's, it's for a reason, there are boundaries that are being crossed, um, boundaries in terms of being able to take care of myself with a lunch break or boundaries with, you know, um, being paid fairly. And I'm talking after the internship, right, as a licensed associate counselor getting paid a living wage when, 
when you get hired being told you're going to make a certain amount and then actually getting paid what you're told you're going to going to make you know doing things that are within your job description not without not outside your job description when when boundaries are getting crossed or violated and you know you're going to have a reaction to it and so your emotions are are messengers they're they're there to tell you something's not quite quite right. You don't know maybe what it is just yet, but uh, I'm really glad that I started listening to the way I was feeling instead of doing, you know, constant people pleasing. Yeah. So rather than being like, I shouldn't be thinking this way or I shouldn't be feeling this way, really tuning into those emotions and being like, Hey, if I'm experiencing anger, like this is telling me that maybe a boundary has been crossed. Maybe an injustice has happened here. I need to listen to that. It's challenging to, to do that. If you're, if you're, feeling like everyone around you is saying, nope, the, the shorter line is definitely longer. And you're saying, no, I don't think that's right. It can be, it is hard to, to, you start to think of, you know, who am I to, ex- to expect something that maybe not all my colleagues are expecting or, um, but, you know, luckily I, I did always have colleagues outside, you know, outside of the, the field that could validate, you know, especially in private practice, they're like, no, we, I mean, that's why I'm in private practice. Cause I, I want to be able to have work-life balance and pay my rent. And, you know, that's it. I was going to ask, like, how did you learn to trust that perspective rather than being like, maybe it is me, maybe I'm not sitting straight enough, or maybe I'm sitting too straight, or maybe I am too kind <laughs> and genuine in sessions. Like, how did you learn to trust your perspective that something's not right here? Yeah, I, I, I want to say that I just woke up one morning and had this beautiful epiphany and was just like, I'm going to believe in myself. You know, that it's just, I, I think I kind of, I, I did get to a point where I had to, um, ask for a vacation. I asked for some time off and, uh, I actually spoke to, I think it was, a yeah, it was my, a relative of mine. Well, I spoke to a couple of people, but uh, my aunt in particular, she was a life coach. And I shared with her a little bit of what was going on from the perspective of like, I've got to toughen up, I've got to X, Y, and Z. And she was the one who kind of metaphorically grabbed me by the shoulders and was like, wake up, this is not okay. If this is wow, even if this is what it's like in your field, you deserve to have these basic needs met in your life. You deserve a work-life balance. You deserve to get paid what your contract says, you know, um, and so on and so forth. Um, and the training too, I, I, uh, you know, every place I went, they talk about how much training we would get. And I just didn't, that just wasn't happening. Wow. So it, it took me kind of really almost starting to burn out and needing, or it was burned out and I needed to take some time off. So I took some time off and keep putting my notice. They wouldn't let me say goodbye to clients oh. and, and, uh, which is uh, unfortunately common, at least in the U S if you give notice, sometimes employers are very upset by that. And so you, you get fired. I didn't get fired, but, yeah. um, I want to make that clear, Yeah, <laughs> I, I played, I, but they, but they just thought it was best if they, you know, talked to them and everything. I think the employers worry that you're going to say Bad something or yeah. steal clients or any, something like that. And so, I took some time off and then opened my own practice and that's been the best thing I've ever yet. So to answer your question, I, I didn't wake up having this huge epiphany. I, I really had to get to a place of, of burnout um, to, to say something's got to change. Yeah. To be like, I'm not the problem. Maybe the problem is like the problem. 
Exactly. I love that quote. Yes. By Michael White. Yes. 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 That is my mantra now. And for anyone listening who could relate it all to having been through experiences like that, they are not the problem. You are not the problem. The problem is the problem and the field has a lot of work to do. 100% because I think a lot of early career therapists are really vulnerable to thinking that they are the problem because I guess just the nature of therapists is that we're either very self-sacrificing or perfectionist or we're both and we really want to do the best by our clients. So we're really into like personal and professional development. So when a supervisor says to us like, hey, you could do this differently, we're like, oh, like maybe I do need to improve upon that. Like we're really, we really love development, a lot of us. But it's been like, hey, maybe that I'm not the problem here. Maybe there's something external to me that is happening that is causing me to feel this way. I think that's quite new for therapists. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that that is part, you know, I've been trying to almost theorize the researcher in me just wants to dive right into all of this, right? Why is it this way? What causes all of this? You know, and I do think that is such a huge part of it is that so many therapists are kind of naturally self-sacrificing and, and like you said, perfectionists. And so it kind of cultivates more of that culture, you know, and, and to that extent of just not, you know, I know money is this taboo topic, not getting paid fairly, not having um, work-life balance, you know, overextending yourself, you know, all of, <clears throat> all of these different pitfalls that we can, that we can come across. And so um, I don't know if this happens in Australia, but in the US, I've gone on countless interviews because I've, I've come to a place um, a few times where I've wanted to be very careful with selecting where I was going to go. And they do not tell you salary during interviews, the first, the second. So I actually have been hired twice not knowing what I was going to get paid until I had already started. And because you could scare them off if you even ask. It's very frowned upon. (laughs) No, that's bizarre. Like, no, I would expect that every job I had, I would know how much I've been paid beforehand. And what you mentioned before about them saying that you're going to earn a salary and then getting into the job and then paying something different. I'm pretty sure like that, like if it's not illegal, it's just, no, it does not happen in Australia. Like you could not do that. That would be not okay. I still have the original contract that I signed of with how much I was going to make. That's not the break of contract. (laughs) Yeah. I think they just like took a gamble of like, well, she's not going to do anything. I'm not, I'm I'm an unpaid intern. I don't, I don't have money for a lawyer and like, I don't have time for that. So it's, yeah, it's wild. That is wild. No, it's just incredible that you would feel so scared to ask about pay um, during an interview or just take a job and not know the pay. Like, yeah, you, you deserve to know how you're going to live. Yes. Yes. I agree. Completely. I agree completely. Yes. And it's, and I can even feel myself hesitate there to like even agree with, you know, cause it's like so ingrained in you after a while of, you know, we're just here to help and you talk of, you know, that, and the truth is that we are just here to help. I actually offer sliding scale to most of my clients. Yeah. I, you know, I, I definitely am not in this to, be super, super wealthy. I just was expecting to make enough to live. I never thought that I would be struggling to get by as somebody who, you know, has two master's degrees, who's worked so hard in the field and, and her whole life, you know, I just, it seemed so it was, it was an ego bruise for sure Mm. to, to, you know, like go through all this training and all these different experiences in the field and to feel, you know, I came in feeling so confident. And ironically, I think there was something, it's almost a change in subject, but I think there's something about 
when I entered into the field as well, I, I think I had this confidence and this excitement that I think rubbed some, you know, I can only think of two people, but it, like, I could tell it rubbed them the wrong way. You know, like, who are you to be so confident? You're, you're new, you know, the excitement was annoying to them, I think, you know, uh, and so I think they really felt the need to put me in my place. And they, I, I was actually told, um, that I needed to basically get in line with the other students and forget about all of my past training, my past jobs, my past experience in mental health and start sounding and acting like another intern in, because I was the way that I spoke was misrepresenting myself is what they had said. Even though every time I got a client, I would say I'm an intern, you know, I have a supervisor, you know, this I'm in school, you know, I had them sign a form, but they said that I was the way I spoke was like someone who is in a PhD program. And that was very strange because I, and I clarified to make sure I understood them. And I, I did in fact, understand them that they were very upset by the fact that I was the way that I was speaking and the, the things that I knew, it didn't seem to fit the mold. And so I, what I heard was basically walk like a duck, quack like a duck. If you step out of line, you'll get put right back in. So I had to kind of nod a lot and humor. And it was like, I was, it's, I got this message of like, don't shine too bright. Wow. Yeah. What I'm hearing is they just wanted you to believe like you, Alison, you are ignorant. You know, nothing. Don't pretend like you know things because you don't. Yep. That was wow. kind of how it was. Yeah. Like you're, you're new. Who do you think you are? Don't be, you know, cause yeah, I would who just do you think nerd. you are? Yeah. I would just like get excited and say, Oh, that's like, you know, this part. And I would just start going off about like theory or, you know, just, you know, excited about, about something. And, um, it was a tough time to. That's so difficult. Like it would have been so hard just to go into that and just like, feel like, you know, your previous professional experiences and your knowledge is just disregarded, I guess. It was something I hadn't expected. I, in my past, my first master's program, there was a very different culture to psychological research, um, the degrees in psychology, but it was a strong emphasis in research. And it was, it was very much, um, <laughs> I always joke that it's like, you kind of always wanted to work your, your GPA into the conversation or, you know, like your, like where you did your postdoc and things like that. Like, it's just a different culture of, you know, every, you, you celebrate excellence. You want your peers to be excellent. You support each other and, and knowledge is you can't get enough of it. And, yeah. you know, um, my professors were, were so knowledgeable and I, I looked up to them and they, they had high expectations for me and they expected great things for me. And so I think I brought that energy into the field of like, I need to impress, I need to succeed. I, there's going to be high expectations. And I think me holding myself to such a high standard with this strong empirical background, it just kind of wasn't quite what was fitting in, I guess. And so I had to kind of reshape the way that I was relating to the field as a whole. Yeah. And it, it really sucks because this is like I've talked on the podcast before, but I really dislike it when therapists can't bring their full selves to their work. I feel like it really affects therapists negatively that they don't feel good in themselves. They don't feel good in their work. So then it would result in poorer client outcomes or maybe just not the best outcomes for clients. So it really saddens me to hear that you just had to feel like, okay, don't shine too brightly when it sounds like you had really unique experiences and unique professional experiences that could have like been enhancing your work and enhancing your internship. Like you, you, you had a lot to bring. Yeah. You know, it makes me think of the parallel process, which was something that I experienced in that workplace I was at for the place I worked for for five years. 
I had this amazing supervisor, you know, and it wasn't because, I mean, she was great and knowledgeable, but she just really allowed me to be the expert in a way, you know, she allowed me to just kind of geek out, share my knowledge. It was, it was great. And I, you know, it felt like through the parallel process, the agency paired, you know, paid us fairly. We had, they were good to the supervisors. The supervisors were very good to us. We had a lot of support, two hours every week of support. And that trickled down to the parents that we worked with. And then that trickled down to the babies that we were ultimately trying to help. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, that illustrates it really well that, yeah, if you're treated well at your workplace, it trickles into everything else. Whereas it really sounds like being you activated some insecurities in other people and then they were like, hey, shine less brightly. We don't like that. And that would have had an impact on you. And in turn, like, I know we're raw professionals, but it's like sometimes it does have an impact on our clients as well if we're burnt out professionals. Oh, absolutely. And it was the first time I'd really experienced that because I had a ton of imposter syndrome. My first master's program, it was very um, arduous and there was lots of long hours. We had six, five or six papers that we had to write in the first semester that were, gosh, I mean, at least 20 pages long or so. Um, And so it was just a strange experience that I'd had. I just never, you know, I always, I never really felt like the smartest person in the room in my first master's program. Cause I felt like I had, I, one of the, one of the students that was in the program with me spoke four languages and another one was a math savant. So I was used to having to work three times as hard, you know, and I'd be up all night studying and, you know, the other students would say, Oh, we studied for an hour last night and you know, they would still get higher scores. than me. So it took me a while to even kind of register that I was holding myself to such a high standard was upsetting um, the wrong people. Unfortunately, it was only one or two that this happened to, but unfortunately they were in positions of power. And I started receiving a lot of negative feedback about me as a person, which was something I think in any other field we wouldn't really put up with. But supervision is this gray area where sometimes you talk about things related to, you know, if there's counter-transference or anything. So it's it's kind of like that boundary is sometimes hard to go, oh, they just crossed a boundary there. That's beyond the supervision, you know, that I'm that I'm looking for or okay with. And so I think that's how some of that snuck in and why it took so long for me to recognize sometimes in certain places that I um, you know, needed to find something that was a little bit more supportive. Yeah. And how did you recognize that maybe a boundary had been crossed in supervision? Did that come through self-reflection or was it through talking with other people? Definitely talking with other people. Um, I'm I'm definitely one of those therapists that strongly believe in doing our own therapy. So I've I you know I've do my own therapy as needed, um, and so I, I I definitely looked into that, especially when I noticed that these workplaces were as challenging as they were. I I knew that it would be um, again that parallel process, right? And you know if I wasn't getting it from my supervisors. I felt, you know, uh, a therapist would be a good place. And so I actually did a lot of staffing almost with my own therapist just to kind of, you know, because I, I wasn't able to talk about clients. I had one supervisor. I was never able to talk about a single client with them because oh, they wow. were so busy pathologizing me. Oh, no, you pathing. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's not right. <laughs> yeah. And then I only found out later that this was happening to her other supervisees. And that and that also helped valid. Oh, I'm not the only one who, yeah. you know, um, ended up in tears or 
you know, uh, from, from a conversation with them or, um, I actually knew some therapists who had to seek out EMDR because of their experiences with supervisors I've had. So I wasn't alone in my experience. And so that I wasn't the only one getting pathologized. I wasn't the only one not getting a lunch break. So I think really getting validated by colleagues and then my own social support outside of work too um, was, was helpful for me. Yeah. No, wonderful. How did you find these supervisors like who have been really good for you? I, it's it's just so interesting because I yeah it's the most of my supervisors have been wonderful I'm I'm kind of really speaking to there's really only been about two that were that were pretty challenging but most of them were just wonderful and they were at my work sites oh fantastic so I I didn't get to choose them they were just handed to me um, I've had quite a few supervisors also because some places I worked the the employer maybe was a not a good situation. And so the turnover was so high that I just kept getting new supervisors okay. as they were leaving. Yeah. And so the the silver lining in all of that is that I've made all these wonderful connections with really wonderful therapists. And so I feel really supported and connected to a network of therapists and supervisors. Um, a lot of women that I look up to that live within my community. And that's, that's been the definite silver lining. Um, to be fair, to be fair to, uh, you know, a lot of the places I did work, I do think COVID had a huge impact on everyone. I think that the agencies, again, were just overwhelmed. And I think personal issues were coming out. And so I do wonder sometimes if some of the supervisors I've worked with, they just weren't their best selves because they were under their own distress or their own, you know, I try to give a lot of grace. I don't have any um, hard feelings. I, I haven't tried to pathologize them. I just kind of, you know, know that sometimes we don't always know what we're saying is affecting someone. And I would want someone to give me that grace if I was ever, you know, imperfect. And I hope if I'm ever a supervisor that my supervisee would let me know if I ever did say something, I would hope that they'd say, Hey, Allison, that really actually hurt my feelings. And I would receive that, you know, well, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, I, you know, I'd want to understand. And mm, I really, I really love that perspective. It's so um, compassionate and it really just acknowledges that supervisors are in the same shitty system that we're in. So they're affected by the same systemic factors that we are. So really having that grace, but then also committing as a future supervisor that you will create that space where you can receive feedback is, is a really lovely commitment. Absolutely. I think a lot of it, a lot of the, if I even were to call it toxicity of the play, a lot of it, I think was just kind of everyone trying to cope with, with a broken system. I, I remember one time I was in a team meeting and they pulled up a bunch of pictures of like this um, blown up duck. It was like a bathtub duck and it was sinking and there are eight images of it in its different stages of sinking. And they were like, which sinking duck are you? It was just, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was just like completely validating that we were all working 50 hours a week and exhausted and they were just like oh it's all normal keep up the good work and I appreciated the humor but I was also like why are we normalizing that we all feel like we're drowning <laughs> yeah we are like the deflated duck underwater great I was like this is so it was just I just remember like 
being so like, I don't even know. I was trying not to laugh because I was in a meeting. It was just like, is this really happening right now? We're just like, <laughs> and then the answers for my colleagues were hilarious. It was like, well, I feel like I'm duck number three because I'm like mostly submerged, but there's a chance that I might breathe again. And then oh you know, some people are like, oh, I've totally drowned. I don't even know. Like, <laughs> just, <laughs> oh my gosh, that would have been, I would have loved to be in a fly on the wall in that meeting. <laughs> what was your answer? Oh gosh, I don't I don't know if I remember. I think I um I think I picked like number two because I just everyone everyone starts just trying to like amp up the positivity of the meeting because yeah. everyone was really diving in on the on the I'm like really they were mildly submerged duck. Like, come on, guys. I can still get some oxygen. Yeah, yeah. totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um so Alison, I'm really interested in like what helps you get by now because okay, the way that I'm seeing your story, it's just like you've just gone through so much and it's amazing to me that you even got through believing that that you are not the problem because I honestly think I would have been like, yep, it's definitely me. I'm the problem. I sit too straight. Um, that's it. <laughs> um, so I think it's just incredible that you've been able to connect with others and just be like, hey, like, no, this is the system. I'm really interested to know what's getting you by now and how do you feel about being a therapist? Like, do you still like it? Yeah. So let's see what's getting me by now uh, would be, I think clients, you know, I, I think there were, there were definitely days where I just wanted to quit, but then I would have some sessions that it just felt really, really good. Like I just felt like I really, it's such an honor to be able to hold space for someone as they share their, their deepest fears, their, you know, their, their negative core beliefs that, you know, stem from deep childhood wounds. And they, they share that with you. And it, it just, you see these aha moments and you see growth, you know, especially clients, sometimes they'll come in and they, they're so dysregulated. And, you know, after a few sessions, they, you know, they come in and you see them almost like a whole new person. They're, they're regulated. They've been practicing, you know, body relaxation deep. It just feels so good to see that progress. And even just the clients who, um, you can just tell that they look forward to seeing you every week, you know, yeah. and it just, if it, it's an honor, it's an awesome job. It really, I mean, that part of it rocks. <laughs> yeah. No, that's amazing. So I've been reflecting on this actually a lot lately about what, what it is that I enjoy about, about being a therapist. And I think it's very similar to you, actually. I, I've realized that I, I really enjoy it for these moments that I have with clients, like where it's like they're very vulnerable and then I can say something that is just really meaningful to them, like hearing that I'm proud of them or you can do this. And it sounds like when you take it out of context, it sounds cheesy and lame, but like in that moment, and that's why it's the moment, it's like it's, it's the most powerful thing that you could do or be there for someone. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it, it's really cool. And, and, you know, and all that being said too, it's also kind of really hard because sometimes you, you really don't know if you're, if you're helping someone oh, and you get all these <laughs> also this doubt. Yeah. I also have days where I'm like, oh gosh, am I, you know, and, uh, it's, it's a constant, it's just a constant process of just, you know, Im improving on, on believing in yourself and just knowing that, you know, we're, we're doing our best and, yeah. 
and um, it's not an easy job. And I, I would love it if it was just a, a direct science and all technique, but there is an artistry to it. And there is still a bit of a, you know, it, you can't measure everything, even though I wish I could. <laughs> no, I wish we could as well. But um, you're right. It's there is like some element of of us. And that I guess that makes it exciting and challenging as well for people who love learning um, is that like you can work out how you can bring yourself to maximize the outcomes for clients. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that rapport, that relationship is the strongest predictor, predictor. too, they say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's it's incredible that like we can have that therapeutic relationship with people and then it can improve lives. Like it's just nuts when you think about it. Yes, I know. It's it's really cool. It really, really is. Especially that element that that part of us just as our, our personality as a person, as a human. No, not not a technique, not, you know, yeah. anything that we learned in a book, but just us as a person, just offering our genuine empathy, our genuine authentic selves. It um like brings up some anger in me when I think about therapists who are who are told like they can't wear particular things or that they can't be themselves in a particular way. And we're going to pick on the sitting straight because I just think it's really funny or that they can't use their natural posture in sessions. It's like, no, that's you. You're bringing that. And then that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a little bit of like scoliosis in my back. Okay. So sure. I kind of, it like curves. So I think that's also why I kind of sit a little. So I just, <laughs> but that's just the, way my back, it's just the way my back goes. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so it's just, it's so, yeah. I think I'm trying to think of all the funny things I heard. I also heard that it, um, it looked like the chair was commanding me versus me <laughs> commanding the chair. <laughs> That is in hilarious. Videos that I, yeah, I'm just taking notes on this. I, I actually found a notepad of like notes from a past supervision. And it was just, it was so funny. And I oh my took gosh. all this so to heart at the time, like, you know, and it was just like, yeah, but I mean, that, I don't want it to make it seem like, you know, I've definitely learned a lot in supervisions as well, especially my current supervisor. I mean, she's just, she's great. She brings a lot of humor, a lot of humility, um, and a lot of knowledge too. Oh, my favorite and, qualities. Yeah. 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 So I feel very lucky. Um, Yeah. And how's your private practice going? Like, how do you feel having stepped out on your own? Like, do you feel like this is the right decision for you? I feel really good being out. It's, It's really wonderful to be able to have control over my schedule. It's really great to be able to set the precedent for how I want to communicate with clients. Um, my, you know, my supervisor, I'm in a supervised private practice. So she, she really, uh, respects me as a professional and gives me lots of freedom with, you know, choosing how I want to handle the cancellation policy, my rates, all of that. It, it really makes me feel comfortable. Cause I, you know, I really like dotting I's and crossing T's and, you know, I'm, I love the code of ethics. It's, it, you know, it's some kind of like my beacon of knowing I'm doing right by clients. And so it's been feeling really, really good. I also am able to make a bit more money to pay for those trainings I've always wanted, which has been amazing. Um, and I have, you know, uh, yeah, and the trainings have been wonderful. I just, it's, that's, that's what I've been really wanting is that extra bit of knowledge. So I've just been soaking up um, as much as I can, because in private practice, you have a bit more free time. You don't, you're not, you're suddenly not seeing some, you know, 31 people a week. And so, yeah. I mean, some, some of us are and like rock on, yeah. that's awesome, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you have more time. Yeah. No, fantastic. And, and where are you heading in the future? Where do you see yourself going? I really enjoy private practice. I hope I can always have that open. Um, 
you know, I just got a part-time job actually um, working in another area of mental health. I'm kind of just getting, you know, into that a little bit. Oh, congrats. So thank you. Yeah. Just kind of exploring the different options within the field. I would love to be a mentor to, to other early career psychologists once I become more established, because I know just how invaluable it is to have a supportive supervisor who sees the best in you, who encourages you, who, um, you know, just is like your cheerleader kind of, right. That's, that's really, that seems really, really, really invaluable and something that would feel really good. I think almost as much as it would feel like working with clients, I think just being a supervisor to other early career therapists. And I, I would love to go back. I have a lot of like aspirations. I don't know if I'll do them all, but I'd love yeah. to go back and <laughs> get, I'd love to go back and get my uh, PhD in neuroscience because I just wow. love neuroscience. Yeah. yeah, that's so cool. I was going to say, like, you seem really passionate about research. So I did wonder that whether that was going to be part of your future. That would be incredible. Oh, absolutely. I would love to get back into research. I, I miss it. It's, it's a, it's like a second language and I haven't really been using that or it's like a muscle I haven't been using that muscle for a really long time maybe 10 years or so and so wow. I've forgotten a lot and so I I would get really excited I actually just for fun did a program learning seek a uh, training in SQL just because I wanted to learn SQL and yeah. then I started learning R in my cool. free time so just <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, this is a weird nerdy side of me. <laughs> That's all right. We've all got it. <laughs> and it's it's interesting too, because um, I've, I've also learned to keep a lid on that because I think it's really common and really understandable. I think a lot of therapists did not like statistics. Yes. It was, their least favorite. I think that's like 99.9% .9 of therapists have come across. And so that's another situation where I just feel like I'm like, just, just like, don't, don't like say that you're a nerd for stats. Like no one will like you, <laughs> you know, I just don't talk about it. Now I think shine brightly, Alison. Cause yeah, like I used to tutor <laughs> statistics and like, I love research and I can totally relate to you being like, I miss research. And that was like me. And that's why I got a job in research last year after finishing my PhD and then doing private practice for a year. And I was like, look, I just, I just need to exercise this muscle. And it's been so lovely to get back into research and just, it's just using that. I, I, there's just different parts of your brain that you use. Like, I know that's not scientific, but it's like, there's just a different skill set that you use and you apply to it. And it's really satisfying. Oh, totally. Oh my gosh. That's awesome. Yeah. I could just talk stats. I just get so excited when I meet someone else who likes statistics. It's yeah. just like, geek out. yeah, it's just, <laughs> we are a rare breed. So <laughs> yeah. I do think so. Yeah, I do think so. And you know, I don't know if it's relevant, but I do think part of why I'm so passionate about statistics is because I, I wasn't good at math when I was Same. younger. I was terrible. Same. Yeah. So it felt really good when I learned statistics and it clicked for me. It was just euphoric almost <laughs> to not be bad at math. I didn't do maths in my last years of high school. So I did music and Japanese, and then I just dropped the math subject altogether. And then, so when I got into my psychology degree and we had to do statistics, I almost failed the first unit. And then I was like, wow, I'm really going to try my hardest to apply myself. And then I did calculus, got a high distinction, which is like our highest level in a unit. And then I started tutoring statistics. And yeah, it's it was very gratifying. Awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's so cool. It's so cool when you when you, you know, think you're just not good at something and then all of a sudden it it clicks for you. It's just 
it's a really exciting feeling. <laughs> it totally is. Yeah. So I feel you, Alison, and there's got to be one or two <laughs> listeners who are also feeling the same. And then the 98 other percent of listeners who are like, bless statistics. <laughs> I almost feel bad saying 98 percent because I just, that's in my own like anecdotal experience. There's probably yeah. maybe more. You know, like if we ever did a, if we ever did a population survey of therapists, you know, I would be interested, but my estimate, my hypothesis would be around 98 percent of them who don't like it. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. And, and totally fair. Cause there's, yeah, I did not like K through 12 math. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Alison. So I'm wondering like, yeah, you mentioned that you would love to mentor early career therapists. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I guess like, what would you most like them to know about this stage that you've been through in your career that they can really take away? I would want listeners to know that it's okay to speak up. If something doesn't seem ethical, if something's not sitting right with them, if they feel the boundary is being crossed in some way, you know, physically, or if, you know, some, something, anything that's happening that is making them uncomfortable, uh, I, I want them to speak out. I, I think the way that we do that is really important, using lots of I statements, sharing your needs, um, and that they're not alone in what they're going through, even if it seems that way, that they're not the problem. The system needs a lot of work. And so I imagine a lot of places, even with the best of intentions, might not be fostering the most healthy work environments. And so, you know, it can be really challenging, but I would encourage them to keep aiming high, keep keep talking about things, even if it ruffles feathers, you know, even if it goes against the status quo, you know, I think the change starts with us in interviews, ask what you're going to get paid. You know, I just do that. I know it's, it's not considered couth in the field. It's uncouth, but I, I, I just, I, I do that. And so, you know, the change starts with us in raising the bar for ourselves and ultimately it's raising the bar for our clients and that's who we care about the most. So let's, you know, let's help our clients by helping the field become a healthier place to work. And I think if I just were to sum it up in one sentence, it would be Michael White, right? You're not the problem. The problem is the problem. That's what I'm going to call the episode. <laughs> Beautifully said, Alison. I really, I really love that. I think it's just so nice. And this is something I've been asked by listeners. So I want to put the question to you, but do you think going through all of these experiences, the negatives and the positives, is it all worth it to be where you are now to be a therapist? Absolutely. I didn't think I would say that if you asked me maybe a year ago. Um, but now I think it was, it was worth it. It was, it was inval It was really tough experiences to go through, but I think it's made me a better therapist, honestly, to, to experience all of these different things. I can relate to my clients even more. And that's been my mantra ever since I was 17, 18. When I wanted to be a therapist, I'd say anything tough that happens to me is just going to make me a better therapist because it's easier to empathize if we've been through something similar. And so that's just the, the silver lining. The meaning I make of it is basically this is going to make me a better therapist one day. Mm. Oh, that's really beautiful. I think that'd be really helpful for some listeners to hear because sometimes they are in this state of disillusionment or despair, or they're in those experiences that you've described like right now. And so it's really helpful for them to hear like, yeah, it, it feels like crap right now, but there are things that you can do and it won't be like this forever. And getting to the other side of being a therapist is a great place to be. 
Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing job that we do. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think it's I think pretty it special. Yeah. <laughs> well, Alison, is there anything that we haven't covered or that anything that you want to leave listeners with? Nothing comes to mind right now. Um, other than, you know, I, I love what you said a couple of episodes ago about, you know, just being excellent to each other and, <laughs> you know, supporting each other and hearing, hearing each other out when we are feeling overwhelmed or burned out and having those difficult conversations and just, just to quote you, Brahman, be excellent to each other. Oh gosh. Uh, it's really my hope for the field. I just want us to be like awesome and excellent to each other. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Alison, for coming on the podcast. I very much appreciate you reaching out and I appreciate your bravery and your vulnerability here today. It's really lovely just to hear about these experiences, how you've come through and what gets you through now and, and where you are now. And, and congratulations on your success with your private practice and the other job as well. Thank you. Thank you, Brahma. Thank you for having me. No worries. Well, listeners, thank you for listening and have a good one. Catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. If there's someone you know who might love this show, let them know about it. It's the best way to get the podcast into new listeners' ears and I'd be so grateful for it. Thanks for listening. Have a good one and see you next time.